session. It's kind of a it'll be kind of an energy 101, the state of the grid. Um, hopefully, we'll find that the state of the grid is strong. Um, we'll, we'll we'll find out. But uh, thanks for joining us um, early this morning. Um, I am Jim Malowitz. I'm a, an energy reporter with the Texas Tribune, um, and I have a diverse um, um, assortment of, of folks here to join me, and we'll we'll uh, probe the state of the energy grid. And um, uh, just a couple quick reminders. Um, uh, we will, this will be an hour-long session. Uh, we'll, we'll shoot for about um, 45 minutes of discussion and then uh, 15 minutes um, of questions from the audience. Uh, I'm sure you have a lot of uh, burning questions for, for these fine folks. Um, and if y'all could, um, could uh, silence your cell phones, um, but uh, don't turn them off because we want y'all tweeting. Um, and if you are <laughs> tweeting, uh, uh, you can use the hashtag um, um, TribuneFest, or you could make up some wonky grid hashtag too, I don't know, <laughs> Energy 101 or something like that, and some folks use TX Energy um, for um, random energy stories. So, um, But I'll just uh, introduce my guests here. Um, to my left, we have uh, the newest member of the uh, Public uh, Utility Commission, Brandy Marty. Um, she was appointed to the commission in uh, 2013 by Rick Perry, and uh, previously she served as the governor's chief of staff. And she was also um, Perry's deputy chief of staff, as well as um, his director of budget planning and policy. And she's a member of the State Bar of Texas. And uh, to her left, we have uh, Jim Marston. He's the vice president uh, for U.S. climate and um, energy um, um, at uh, the Environmental Defense Fund. Um, he is the founding director of EDF's uh, Texas office, uh, where he's served since 1988. He has, uh, he's also a leader of Pecan Street, Inc., a private-public uh, partnership aimed at changing the nation's electricity grid. Um, he has helped uh, design and advocate for a range of legislative proposals, including Texas's um, Renewable Portfolio Standard. So I'll give him. To his left, we have uh, um, Congressman Gene Green. He's a U.S. representative um, representing Houston. Um, since uh, 1993, he's represented the um, um, 29th uh, District, uh, which includes most of eastern Houston and, and its suburbs. And uh, he's a member of the House Energy and Commerce Committee um, that's since 1996. And he's been a member of the, um, uh, of the Health, Energy, and Power, Environment, and Economy, and Oversight Investigations. And previously, he served in the Texas legislature for 20 years. And then we have Doyle Benneby. Um, since uh, 2010, he has led um, uh, San Antonio CPS Energy, which is the largest municipal electric and gas utility in the nation. He is the former president um, of the competitive power company Exelon, and he has more than 25 years of experience in the energy industry, and he serves on the board of directors for several uh, corporate uh, industry um, organizations. And lastly, we have uh, Barry Smitherman. He's a commissioner of the Texas Railroad Commission. He was appointed uh, in uh, 2011 to the commission and reelected the next year. And um, as many of you know, the um, commission does not regulate railroads. Um, think more oil, gas, pipelines, mining. Um, and he has chaired the commission from uh, early 2012 until August of this year. And uh, before that, uh, um, Commissioner Smitherman was, um, spent six years on the uh, Public Utility Commission and half of that time as its chair. And he previously worked as a bond attorney and a prosecutor. So as you all can see, we have some pretty distinguished guests um, with uh, a lot of uh, expertise sort of in um, various areas of, of uh, these grid issues. So hopefully um, we'll be able to probe those and uh, um, get some interesting insight. And so we kind of 
um, are, are here in an interesting time um, for the grid. If we were here last year, we'd probably be talking a lot about Texas's um, um, reliability issues uh, when it comes to um, dealing with peak demands of, um, of, of the summer. There are a lot of, um, um, I'm, th th there are always concerns about whether Texas will um, be able to uh, ramp up its um, peak um, energy supply um, during, um, during hot times, but uh, uh, and we had this big discussion as to whether we would overhaul the um, wholesale energy market and to you know, incentivize generators to um, keep more um, supply um, um, in reserve. But uh, um, just in, in uh, February, the um, uh, ERCAT, um, which um, um, is, uh, oversees um, the grid that covers mo most of Texas, um, came out with um, some relatively good news that um, our, um, our reserves look good um, in peak times um, through 2017 or so. So that discussion has kind of died down. Um, the, big, the big topic of, of debate now um, uh, and, 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 to how, and where Texas fares is um, the EPA's uh, clean, um, clean uh, um, power plan. And, um, and these are the regulations that the Obama administration um, announced um, this summer that basically set um, emissions targets for each state to meet um, and uh, d different goals. And, and states are supposed to design a plan, um, it, it, it can be flexible, kind of, it's uh, supposed to be any way we, we want to meet these uh, emissions targets, which um, are going to um, really affect the grid and especially um, affect the coal sector. So with that, I think, I think we'll, we'll start out and, and get some insight as to sort of where Texas is in, in terms of its fuel mix and, and, uh, and uh, you know, whether we'll have um, um, you know, adequate transmission to deliver power in some of these changing times. And, and so these, um, un under the, um, the climate regulations, uh, Texas is supposed to um, cut, as we calculated at the Tribune, about 195 billion pounds of CO2 in the next 18 years. That sounds like a lot. Um, and uh, that's about a 43% reduction from uh, where we are now. And um, the EPA has basically said that there are four really broad ways we can do this, which is um, that, that coal plants can become more efficient, um, that uh, we can switch from coal to natural gas, and we can boost the renewable sector and increase energy efficiency. Um, and so um, I want to just sort of throw it out. Um, I, I, I guess um, um, maybe Commissioner Smitherman, you can talk about um, the Texas... Um, has been, um, you know, the Texas regulators have been collaborating now um, for several months, talking about how um, we might meet these um, uh, meet this goal. And uh, is this an ambitious goal? Is 195 um, billion pounds of uh, CO2 um, uh, something that's going to be tough to meet? It's incredibly ambitious, Jim, and, and thank you for putting this together. We used to have a little inside joke at the PUC that. When someone made a prediction and it actually came true several years later, we would say that they were eerily prescient. And so I would say that the Texas regulators have been eerily prescient in preparing us really sort of unwittingly to weather this 111D storm. Because we made tremendous investments in our grid. Brandy knows this uh, as well as everyone else on the panel. If you look at what we did on CREZ, where we spent, it's called $7 billion. Yeah, and that's the uh, competitive renewable energy zone? It is. Yeah. Uh, 345 kV transmission running out to West Texas in the Panhandle. Add that to the other normal investments in transmission, which are probably a billion a year. Smart meter deployment, which was, let's call it $3 billion. The nodal uh, dispatch system at ERCOT, half a billion. 
So the state of Texas and Texas citizens have made over $10 billion worth of investment in our grid, which has positioned us to be able to absorb the changes of 111D, not easily, but more easily, with less disruption. But if you look at the numbers on 111D, we are being called upon to make, uh, if not a third, maybe 40% of all the CO2 reductions in America by having our coal output, by doubling our gas, and by increasing by 150% our renewable and, uh, output. To, and to what extent, you know, that, and that is a huge amount of the reductions, you know, across America that, that, that Texas would bear. To what extent, though, you know, Texas is obviously a huge state. Um, does, that obviously has to factor into that. I mean, is, is the fact that Texas is big alone, is, is that, um, does that not soften the blow, but... Um, well, I, I have my own personal point of view on mm-hmm. why Texas is being asked to make such huge reductions. But I think uh, equally important is, and Congressman Gene, uh, Gene Green and I were talking about this before, we are not being given credit for the improvements that we made in our grid beginning in 2005 through 2012. And us and a lot of other states are asking the EPA to go back and take those into consideration because as a first mover, we really have spent a lot of money to prepare our grid for the 21st century and the 22nd century, and yet because of where they set the date, the 2012 timeline, we're really not getting credit okay. for that. And, and that's interesting that you bring that up. That's been sort of a subject of debate um, when we're talking about how states are going to you know, try to try to meet this emission tar- target is, is whether we're getting credit. Um, uh, Jim, ha- ha- I, I feel like um, EDF has kind of talked about this a little bit and, and said basically, um, you know, uh, Texas has sort of, you know, been moving in this direction, and and um, and it's you know maybe has gotten credit for that in um, in uh, some of the investments um, when we're talking about um, um, how stringent the emissions target is going to be. Have, have, do, do you feel that Texas is is getting credit in the EPA equation? Well, certainly we're getting credit for everything since 2012, <laughs> and we ought to give EPA credit for that. And, and frankly, following the pattern they've done with regard to every other environmental rule going back to the Nixon administration. You get credit for a few years before, but not indefinitely. And I do want to praise the PUC in the state of Texas for what we did on the grid. I'm often critical of the uh, current administration, but that has been a good thing. But let's be clear. Uh, This rule is good for Texas. Uh, Here, this is who wins under this rule. Natural gas, Angus says the rule is likely to result in a 45% increase in the use of natural gas in, in boilers. Who produces half the gas in the country? Texas. What else wins? Renewables. We have great wind and solar resources. We've only scratched, particularly on the solar side. We're a state who's done almost nothing compared to other places on efficiency, a big opportunity to save money and win. And then we also have a lot of waste in our system. Uh, there's an opportunity to do something called boat bar, uh, reduce the amount of odor voltage we have. A number of states have already started dockets there. We need to do that. But we can reduce 2% of our, our uh, use right there and save money. So this is a great rule for us. I'm still shaking my head about why our officials oppose it. Uh, 
if I was governor of Kentucky, I might be opposed to this, but I, if I were a state official in Texas, I would be agreeing yeah. with uh, Professor Weber, who says this is a big hug for Texas. Yeah. Commissioner Marty, it looks like you wanted to jump in, um, um, and I'm, you could sort of address anything in there, but I, I, I was kind of wondering about, uh, you know, uh, we have talked a lot, there's, there's a lot of uh, debate about, uh, you know, Texas benefiting because of uh, the shift towards <laughs> natural gas. Is, is, it, is it that simple? There, there's no question that this rule, were it to be implemented, would create tremendous wealth for some people in Texas. Um, we, we would have, there, there are people who stand to make a whole, whole lot of money if this rule were to become law. But as a regulator, um, I'm not interested in who will make a lot of money. I'm interested in a reliable grid, and I'm interested in what ratepayers will have to pay. And there are, there are um, varying projections on how much the increase would be on ratepayers should this, this, um, this rule become uh, the law of the land. And, um, you know, so that, that's my fear. There, yes, there, there are people who stand to make a ton of money in Texas. And those same people may be the only people that can afford their electricity bills should this, this become law ultimately. Congressman Green, I, I can't speak too early. Uh, <laughs> uh, you, you're smiling there. Um, and, and I think that's true. Not all of us, you know, have a natural gas well in Eagle Ford. Uh, but, um, but for our job base, it is, it is a win ultimately. The problem Texas has is that, uh, I guess, first of all, since EPA was created, and I served in the legislature, it's in our DEA, DNA to complain about the EPA. And that's what we do. Um, but in this case, we have the opportunity to do it. But we have some parameters in Texas that other states may not have. We have a competitive system that we have to have three agencies to be able to sit down and work out our response to this with EPA, whereas most states don't have that. I mean, they have one. And they have fixed rates. Uh, Texas made a decision 10 years ago, I guess, or more, mm -hmm. for a competitive system. And we've benefited from it in some ways. Um, I was concerned about the grid a couple of years ago, but it's in great shape now. And, uh, and, but it's also, there's a guy who comes from East Harris County where we have uh, a lot of refineries and chemical plants. Uh, I like in Washington to talk about not only our oil and gas industry, but we also are leading the country in wind. We've already made that uh, determination. And I don't think EPA gave us credit for that. Now, and Jim's right, we can do a lot more on solar. And we may see the legislature, hopefully, because I know a few years ago, they were going to do the same thing with solar as they, we did with wind a number of years ago. Um, that would help us. I'm, I'm a nuclear power person. Um, we didn't get our expansion at South Texas plant uh, because one of our investors was Tokyo Power and after Fukushima, they, they, did, they decided their investment when they were in bankruptcy didn't cover us. So, you know, one of the cleanest burning for carbon is the way you do the electricity. We have some options, but it's going to take a lot of work with our state agencies in the EPA. We had a hearing two weeks ago in our Energy and Power Subcommittee. We had a commissioner from the Public Utility Commission um, who was a great witness. And it does bother us, for those of us who are from Texas, so to say, Texas is expected to do 40% of what the whole country is going to do. Um, that's a pretty big, uh, we can do things great in Texas, but uh, don't make it too hard for us. But, uh, but we're going to work it. Uh, what my concern is, as an elected official in Congress is that I don't want us to get to where we were when uh, EPA started uh, 
uh, carbon permits. The state of Texas decided not to issue the carbon permits. It was an industry problem because then EPA, all of a sudden, a non-permitting agency, had to create permits. Mm -hmm. And it slowed us down in East Harris County for some of, to build on some of the success we have at the reasonable price natural gas in our chemical industry. So we need to sit down and work with EPA. And I know a lot of members of Congress are willing to do that with our state agencies mm -hmm. to make it work. And, uh, and uh, Commissioner Marty and Commissioner Smitherman, I know that uh, you, know, you mentioned all these agencies are sort of working together on this. Um, and Commissioner Smitherman, at, at one of the, um, uh, the open sessions, uh, um, oh, <laughs> I'll make sure to get the, um, okay. uh, Do Doyle in, because uh, um, um, did, um, did you want, do you want to address? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll address it very quickly, but thank you. Um, I, I think. Um, the, the question is, you know, can, can nominally Texas make it work? Um, so I, I think, first of all, there's a case to be made that the regulators in Texas, I think, ought to sit down with the generators. And mm -hmm. we've been trying to mm -hmm. arrange that. And, and I've talked to several legislators and regulators, and, and we're trying to fashion some discussion, I think, before the comments are made to the EPA. I think if you look at this in a, in a static way, it looks very, very daunting. Uh, but, but this is all dynamic. I think the rule itself can be adjusted. I think, you know, if, if you look at some of the micro aspects of it in terms of efficiency on power plants, in terms of how much credit for nuclear, there's some tweaks around the edges that I think can be uh, suggested uh, and, and maybe uh, the, the EPA can be um, influenced to change. Yeah. Secondly, you, it's dynamic in a sense that Texas is, is starting to really uh, get a foothold in uh, conservation and demand response. Uh, solar was mentioned. You know, we have gone big in solar. We have a solar manufacturing site that just started producing panels mm -hmm. last month. So there are a lot of these things that are going on. The Cres lines, more wind. So in a dynamic sense, uh, with all these moving parts, somewhere in that mix, there's probably a, a way that Texas can make this work mm -hmm. uh, and still uh, really um, um, supercharged the best economic engine in the country already that we have here. So, uh, so our thoughts are that if we can sit down with the legislators, regulators, meaning the, the companies and the large generators, um, there's probably a path where perhaps this, this works. I think, in, in my view, we've tried to become at least publicly agnostic of the politics mm -hmm. of it, right. and I think it's going to take that kind of view okay. of it. But, but there are enough moving parts. Texas has enough sort of, pardon the pun, wind behind its sails, and we're converging on uh, not only driving economics, but we're converging on low-carbon alternatives here, uh, and we have the resources that no other state has. So okay. there's probably a way to do that. And uh, commissioners, when y'all are, you know, sort of collaborating and, you know, meeting together, um, so ha have the generators not necessarily been on the table, or how's that working? I know this has all kind of happened in the last couple of months, so it's, um, and, and, and uh, you know, the rules might be in place, you know, as early as, you know, them calling for, the EPA calling for a Texas plan by 2016. So it's moving fastly, but have, have the generators not then been at, at the table? Is that what you were saying, um, Doyle? Well, it's, it's, yeah. it's early, yeah. and so there's right. plenty of time for that. Right. And, of course, the comment period's been extended by 45 right. days recently. Right. So okay. it's plenty of time to do that, but at least to my knowledge, it hasn't happened yet. And I think it probably ought to happen uh, somewhere in a room, um, you know, no public comments. I mean, just, just to talk about our views, because Texas is very unique in that sense. We have some really big generators here who've already uh, gone down sort of a low-carbon path. We're one of them. Uh, and then we have some others on the other end of the spectrum who will be harmed. But if you, if you, if you look at, uh, you know, nominally from a weighted average standpoint, there's enough in there to make this work, I think. 
but we, we might, you know, but I think sitting down and mm -hmm. talking about it might at least give some ideas, along with, as I said, uh, perhaps influencing EPA uh, to tweak some of the, mm -hmm. the, at least the first version of the rule. Sure, and, and, and um, are those, is that in the works to, to kind of get the generators at the table and probably no reporters allowed? I don't know if you'll, 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 you'll <laughs> they, bar people like me. Um, they would have to be allowed because we can't meet unless we do it in a <laughs> setting. That's true, that's true. So, yeah, unless, unless um, but, but we can meet with them privately, and I think that um, I've met with the majority in the state, and probably it's, it's more likely that the ones that um, have come to darken our doors are the ones who would be hurt financially. Um, but generators... You know, depending on what their energy portfolio is, um, they will stand to win or they will stand to lose. Um, Texas has a unique market. In this, in this whole country, we are the only people who have a market like we have. And, you know, there are a lot of people in Texas who don't understand our market. I think it is fair for me to say that there's probably nobody at the EPA who understands our market very well. Um, when we have prices based on scarcity and you are going to take an entire commodity out in such a short period of time. I mean, you have to remember, this isn't something that we can, you know, ease into, which Texas has been, as was stated earlier, Texas is a leader in clean energy. We have been doing this. Um, we made billions of dollars in investment, like Barry said, over the last 10 years. So the policy goal of clean air, we're on it. We are, we are in it for the long haul, and it's becoming more and more competitive. We're seeing solar on the ERCOT grid now out in West Texas. And um, I meet with a whole lot of solar folks because they are hungry, they are excited, and they're coming in and telling me that they are competitive now. Well, great, we have a marketplace currently that is open for business. So come on in and, and, and bring your game. We're, we are here to do that, and the, the free market is opening that up. Um, we do not run a lot of the dirty coal in Texas because the heat rate is part of the marginal cost that will knock them out of the market. So... Um, so we are, we are doing a lot of these goals, but the, the timelines that are presented will create scarcity pricing immediately. They will create a dangerous con conditions for reliability, and they will, we will all see increased prices um, in, in our bills. Let me follow up on one that worries me about the carbon. Carbon's an issue worldwide, but in our hearing, some of the issues came up that if EPA is putting all their effort on carbon, some of the things you have to do at a plant may end up exposing us, those of us who live and work around those plants and having an area that both because of our vehicles and our ind industry, we are an environmentally challenged area, but we also have a great economy. So I don't want to make sure, I want to make sure EPA doesn't say, well, you need to control carbon, but don't put any more benzene in the air either, you know, because we don't want to trade off carbon control for additional localized pollution that, that go to my constituents and the people who work on those plants. Sure, and I guess, and I guess uh, sort of in, in that context too, there's discussions about methane too, and whether you know yeah. methane leakages w within the hydraulic fracturing process, you know, creates um, you know more more heat trapping gases. But I guess we'll we'll leave that to the EPA versus Texas um, uh, panel that we have um, later. Commissioner Smither, you, you want to? Yeah, Jim, I'm just going to add that you know our market design, which is as Brandy said, unique in the world. We're we're not interconnected with the rest of the country except with a couple of minimal DC ties. We run an energy-only market, which means that you make money as a generator by selling electricity. We don't pay you an additional amount just to have your plant up and running. That does not lend itself well to the four building blocks that the EPA has dictated 
to comply with 111D. One of them is that we're supposed to run our plants more efficiently. Well, in a competitive market, I'm already incented to run my plant efficiently because I make more money if I run it efficiently. Two, we're supposed to burn more natural gas than coal. But as regulators, we have no legislative ability to command that we dispatch one commodity over okay. the other. And we it's, run yeah. a five-minute security-constrained economic dispatch. And so if gas is cheaper than coal, we burn more gas. If coal is cheaper than gas, we burn more coal. And the two of them counterbalance each other, which is one of the reasons we've got this nice, broad portfolio and low prices. Sure. In fact, Doyle's group put out a report not too long ago that I borrowed frequently, and I actually adjusted it slightly, <laughs> which shows that of the, th of the 10 largest cities in America, the three with the lowest residential gas prices and electricity prices combined are San Antonio, Dallas, mm -hmm. and Houston. That gives us a tremendous competitive advantage when we're retaining businesses and attracting businesses. Mm -hmm. And then the last thing I'll say about the building blocks, building block three requires us to increase our renewable energy by 150%. Well, we've already got 11 gigawatts on the grid. Does that mean we're going to 26 gigawatts of renewable? Our minimum load is about 30. So we have to be very careful because at times we could have 80 to 90% of our electricity being supplied at midnight in the spring by wind. But if the wind stops blowing quickly, then we have to ramp these thermal units back up to maintain reliability. And, and, and I think you, you use, I want to pick up on, on a sort of choice of language you use with, in, in terms of, uh, you know, these building blocks, blocks that being requirements and kind of like the EPA dictating, like, kind of, you know, here's, here's how you need to meet it. I know that's, uh, the EPA used these building blocks to, to calculate um, kind of Texas's goal, um, but it, it, it sort of said that this is a, a flexible plan. I'm wondering, it, it looks like, Jim, you wanted yeah. to... Yeah, I, there is some confusion, and I had hoped uh, the testimony of our funeral council at your, your hearing had, had uh, solved that confusion. EPA does not require 150% more e renewables from the state or any amount of efficiency. EPA did what the states ask. Give us differential standards based on our ability to do that, and that's why Texas has our number. The Bible tells us uh, from from uh, those who's uh, given much, no, those who receive much, much is expected. We have been given a lot. We're expected to do a fair amount. And by the way, they did. They showed us their numbers, and they're reasonable. And then we have four options to do whatever we want. We can do 100% efficiency, 100% gas, 100% renewables, and if we want to throw in some some operation uh, of the plants or the lines better, we can do that. That's what the states have asked for, and we've got it. Now let's take advantage of it. And, and, I, and I guess, the, I guess the, the, the debate then is, you know, in terms of, um, I, I'm guessing, uh, Commissioner Smitherman, and, and maybe, you know, let me know if I'm wrong, you're saying it's, it's more of a requirement in that this is how they calculated the, um, the target. So, like, this is what they say Texas can, can do. So, um, it's a requirement in that 
Well, um, we're, we're rapidly getting into weeds of this, and sure, I know you yeah. wanted to try to avoid yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but the reality is the renewable portion of this, Building Block 3, was derived by the EPA from the Kansas Renewable Portfolio Standard, which has absolutely nothing to do with Texas. Um, I think Jim and I are parsing words. It may not be a requirement, but you have these four building blocks. You can choose which of them you want, but you have to get to a CO2 reduction level within a certain amount of time. And the point I'm making is, because of our competitive market design, we are actually limited in which tools we can use as policymakers unless the legislature decides to change the law. Let me just say, you know, and I agree with Jim, the 40 but when you think 40% of the country's carbon is up to Texas, the Bible only asks for 10%. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and, and that, I, I think that that's... We ought to debate the Bible more. The Bible wants more than 10% from us. You know, the EPA we, we, wants we more. We are stewards of the earth. The, I, I think that that is, um, that's the key here. For Texas, um, the idea of flexibility is, is not something that, that we, in, in looking at this, are able to see because the, the goals are so high that it leaves very little room for Texas to do anything but hit every single block with everything we've got because the goals, the, the, the targets are just so high. So we're not seeing flexibility, although we hear flexibility more than we hear anything else, I think. And, and, and Doyle, I, I was hoping that you'd weigh in too, and, and obviously every utility is different, and CPS is, is sort of its, its own animal, but um, y'all have talked about how you're agnostic on these, but you feel like you're kind of ready to meet them. Um, do you feel like there's anything that y'all have done in, in the past couple of years that other utilities can learn from, even if they're maybe not designed like CPS? Well, well first of all, I didn't realize this panel would turn into a discussion on canon law. <laughs> uh, so I don't have a, I don't have a, a quick uh, Bible reference to make, I'm sorry. Um, but, but yeah, I think um, the, the, one of the missing pieces here is uh, sort of the invisible hand. Uh, there are some generators in Texas and across the country that have made a conscious decision years ago to go low carbon because there is a competitive advantage. Now, that suggests there are going to be winners and losers, and that's probably the case in any kind of uh, regulatory or legislative regime change, so to speak. Uh, so, so, I mean, that's just reality. Um, now, having said that, um, you know, we, have, we chose a few years ago to uh, shut down one of our coal plants by 18, bought a natural gas plant. Uh, we have gone heavily into, uh, in our case, buying uh, wind output because, you know, we don't own. Same with solar. So uh, you could probably look at, I'm not speaking for any of the other generators, but you could look at Calpine, maybe NRG, Exelon. I mean, a lot of these folks have, have chosen to go low carbon a long time ago. And, and so, and, and not principally because um, they necessarily believe that it was a... Um, you know, an antidote to climate change. They did it because there's an economic advantage. And, and I, my sense would be that um, um, with that being the premise, uh, even with, you know, even with the existing uh, first slate of EPA rules, and let's say they're in, in the case of, in, as we all, I think, generally think a bit draconian for Texas, but if they were tweaked a bit, I think that um, the economic incentive will incentivize folks to uh, figure out ways to get low carbon assets on the grid. Uh, that might take time, and maybe we, you know, maybe there's some discussions around 
the timeline. Uh, again, we talked about different tweaks of the building blocks to make sure Texas optimizes the things it's already done. Uh, but but in that little mix there, I think there's a way out. But they're going to be winners and losers. And and, and so and, and we've talked about too this idea of you know whether um, these regulations this target would sort of um, throw Texas off of its um, you know basically re- require Texas to to stop you know having a competitive market. Um, do, do, do you do, do any of you feel I mean is could you know could the sort of the price of carbon that 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 type of thing just be thrown into the equation um, of um, you know, of our competitive market right now? I mean, um, th- does it require fundamental changes or are we just kind of incorporating um, the price of carbon, well, you know, into... Jim, let me turn that question yeah, around. sure. If the administration was serious about reducing carbon, why not require the rest of the country to have a competitive wholesale market <laughs> and a competitive retail market? I mean, think about how ERCOT works. First, we dispatch wind or solar because it has zero marginal cost. Then we dispatch nuclear, which is zero carbon. Then if gas stays low, we dispatch gas, which has half the carbon of coal, and then last is coal. That happens because of our market design. If you were really serious about this being a national or international policy, then have everyone operate with a competitive wholesale market. Okay. And, uh, um, sorry, uh, um, I was just saying, we've already started substantial fuel switching. Mm-hmm. in Texas uh, to natural gas because the reasonable price of it and also the same thing with the power generators talked about we can get there but it, the EPA gives us some mm-hmm. straight jackets it's sure. going to be hard to get there and we're going to need some flexibility and that's what that's what we need to work for and, and, and I do want to ask because the um, the shift from coal to natural gas is, is such a big um, part of this within the building blocks uh, if, if Texas follows its, its building blocks I mean does this make us too reliable on, on natural gas? Is that going to create problems? And, uh, you know, are we going to have an unbalanced portfolio? Um, Commissioner, you're, you're, you're nodding. Is that, yeah, yeah, I mean, we, yeah, we, we will. I mean, we, we just absolutely will. We'll have natural gas, we'll have renewables, and we'll have a little bit of nuke. So um, for a competitive marketplace, having a less, uh, a less balanced portfolio is always a problem. Let me tell you that um, what I think our market ought to look like. It ought to either directly or indirectly take into account that you cannot indefinitely put uh, carbon in the market with zero regulations. And so we need to figure out how to get there. There there are smart utilities in Texas who have been planning for a long time. CPS is one. Frankly, uh, El Paso is ready to go. And NRG has done a bunch of great things. And they have a, a, a strategy that ought to be part of our program, which is coal with CCS, carbon captured storage. They got a project, partly funded by EPA, partly funded by money from them. They're going to capture that CO2, put it under the ground in an old oil field. You can say, oh, it costs a lot of money to do that. Well, here's the economics. They're putting it in an oil field that currently gets five barrels a day, that oil field is now going to get 15,000 barrels of oil a day, a 300% increase. You do the math at $100 a barrel, that's about a half a billion dollars a year that CCS in Texas will generate in one oil field, one plant. 
And, and, and I guess the question is... Um, that we, coal can yeah, be part of the market. Sure. It just can't operate the way it has today. And, and it seems like a lot of the critics of the um, power plan are kind of pointing out just kind of how quickly the turnaround is. I mean, is, is there a way to kind of um, get all the technology you know, up, up to scale to the amount that, that, that we need to to make this shift um, doable in, in the shorter term? Um, well, let, let me talk about that. The first treaty the United States signed on global warming was signed by George Herbert Walker Bush. Sure. Okay? Utilities, regulators, states have had now four four presidents to get ready for it. Some states have moved quickly or have reduced their CO2 during that time. Some states have ignored the problem. Some utilities have moved forward. Some have uh, ignored the problem. The fact that the states and the utilities that didn't act, going back to four administrations, and now complain they don't have time, have only themselves to blame. Well, but, but Jim, let's really look at history. Yeah, the United States did not sign the Kyoto Protocol, but we're the only country, one of the few, that is actually compliant with the parameters that are in it. Most of the European countries that signed on for carbon reduction pursuant to Kyoto have not met those targets. So we met the targets through a combination of low-priced natural gas, wind, and competitive markets. That's how we're doing it. Texas has reduced its CO2 more than almost any other state. We're back down on a per capita basis to the 1970 levels. So the argument that we have to have 111D in order to comply with CO2 reductions really flies in the face of what the market has done in Texas. And, and, and I guess uh, and as we're, we're spending a lot of uh, time on this, I'm, I'm wondering if we can kind of still start um, operating back within the parameters of we, we have it. I mean, it might, it might be tweaked and kind of like, yeah. what does that mean for Texas and kind of how do we get there? I'm wondering, uh, Commissioner Smitherman, um, it sounds like you probably disagree with Jim's assessment that this idea that, that some utilities have sort of ignored this momentum um, toward, you know, towards, um, you know, um, reducing carbon. I mean, do, do, you feel, do you feel like that it's fair to, to mention the fact that we have been sort of slowly transitioning away from from coal, at, at least in, in our rhetoric, and, and to, you know, is, is it fair to, um, you know, the utilities that have, you know, tried to take this into account in, in their planning to, um, you know, say that uh, the, those who haven't, um, um, you know, should get a free pass or however you want to say it? Well, the market is a, uh, is a demanding taskmaster. And so if you have a high heat rate or your unit doesn't run, um, economically, you don't get dispatched. And I know this is another panel, but because of horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing, the price of natural gas went from $13.5 to, to MMBTU to $2. Well, suddenly natural gas is much more economic to burn as a boiler fuel to make electricity. So let's not forget what has happened in that commodity market to allow us in ERCOT to burn a lot more natural gas to make electricity. But we still are 40% dependent on coal, 40% gas, 10 wind, and 10 nuclear. That's a nice portfolio that we have. It clearly ought to be the case that if you're trying to run an old inefficient plant 
you don't get dispatched. That's our market design, whether it's a coal plant or a gas plant. And generally speaking, at these natural gas prices, it's going to be a coal plant, an old coal plant that's not going to get dispatched. The, what Jim talked about, the carbon sequestration in Fort Bend County, southwest of Houston, his success, the federal government put in about $125 million, but it cost about a billion dollars to do one of the coal plants there at, uh, in Fort Bend County. Huge amount of capital that has to come from the market somewhere because we're a competitive system. Uh, that's the only success we have. We've tried in Mississippi for a good while and they've used uh, sequestration and carbon for enhanced recovery there, but nowhere on the level that we're doing it, uh, trying to do it in Texas. But, you know, you think the private market, uh, there's just not, you know, $900 million laying around uh, that you could actually probably put it in a gas plant <laughs> instead of trying to enhance recovery on for carbon. But it's, it's going to work and it's a success, although the dollars and cents don't, still don't match up because, um, you know, even though you're going to substantially increase your oil output, uh, it's not going to cover that still basic cost. Doyle, I'm wondering if we can sort of, and, and you've already addressed this to some extent, the idea that, you know, CPS has sort of um, factored carbon into the equation for the past few years. I'm wondering, would, would you feel, or do you feel, do you roll your eyes, you know, at utilities who, who sort of, um, you know, talk about the burden now, who, who may not have made the types of investments that, that, that yours has to, to say, you know, maybe you should have seen this coming? Well, I, I don't roll my eyes, but um, <laughs> um, but but you know, it's it's part of uh, the market. That that's that's part of uh, an open market is that you make choices, and um, there's been to some degree an inevitability of with this stuff for a long time, whether you agree with it or not. And quite frankly, from a capital expenditure standpoint, as a as a company, uh, we strive for certainty, even if the certainty we don't like at least we can prepare for it and build um, a sustainable capital plan for it. So um, I, I don't, you know, don't necessarily roll my eyes, but, but there were choices to be made quite a, quite a long time ago. And at the end of the day, no matter where this goes, uh, there are going to be winners and there are going to be losers. And that's just the way the market works. So I think the, the basic question becomes, with all that we've talked about today, is there a path that, uh, that Texas can kind of get there um, and, and my sense is uh, there is, with all those moving pieces, tweaks, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I'm really glad that the discussion of technology came up because there's also an enhanced oil recovery project at Summit that we're part of. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a, quite a, a way to, uh, to sell urea also uh, that helps the economic equation. But, but we've got until you know, 2020 20 to 2030 period to get all this done. So even as we speak today, there's still a pretty good timeline out there to make sure that um, the Texas system from a reliability standpoint is not negatively impacted. Of course, it could mean uh, pricing issues. Uh, companies still have to make choices, um, but, but there's still enough of a timeline to at least uh, create a path where uh, it's going to work out. And again, we approach it from nominally uh, an agnostic standpoint, uh, you know, this is, this is our, our role is to, especially as a, as a muni, to shield our shareholders from um, risk. And, and my shareholders are the guys and gals on the bus stop. They're not sitting in, in a, uh, a uh, skyscraper in Manhattan necessarily in, a, in the municipal world. So we, we look at it very, very defensively. But if you're an investor owned, uh, some have made choices to look at it as 
a competitive advantage opportunity going forward, and some have it. So I'm not judging either way, but, but there were choices to be made and still can be made. Sure, and, and we're going to go to questions in just a couple of minutes. I, I, I did want to um, sort of make sure that we, we did talk like very, very briefly, just I'll sort of throw, throw one more question out there. Um, so yeah, and if you do have questions, feel free to um, come up to the mic. Um, um, about uh, Commissioner Smitherman, we, we were talking, um, I think yesterday or the day before, about some of your concerns. Um, you know, it, I think it's clear that there, there will be, you know, areas of the state where coal plants will shut down um, because of this. Uh, you, you were concerned about the, the transmission and, and as to what, whether there might be certain areas of the state that, um, you know, if, if certain generators shut down um, would be sort of left without uh, the proper transmission. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and, and to what extent you see that as an issue? Yeah, let me say two things real quick. One is that at the end of the day, the grid is an engineering marvel, and it works well so long as we adhere to the rules of physics and electrical engineering. You can't just close down a coal plant in East Texas and assume that the voltage support and the reliability will be the same without replacing it with some other spinning mass or building more transmission interconnections to maintain voltage and reliability. So that's one issue that I think has not been fully vetted into 111D. But before we get away, I, I, I hope we get some questions on this. We've talked a lot about the supply side, right. but we really have not focused on demand response. It's true. It's true. And one of the beauties of our competitive market is that we empower the customer to make decisions about consumption. We do that through a variety of ways, price signals, smart meters, pricing plans that have variable rates or that are 100% renewable or indexed to natural gas. And that brings the customer in Doyle's company does a little bit different. But you, have, you, you deployed smart meters as well to empower the customer to get off the grid when prices are too high. And I think that's a very important consideration uh, in trying to meet 111D going forward and keep the price of power as low as possible. It is. And, and, and I am wondering to what extent um, there was a report out by the Braddock Group. I think it was in 2012. Um, it said that uh, Texas, um, uh, it could uh, potentially meet... Uh, I think it was like 15% of its peak demand through demand response if it sort of took the appropriate steps. I don't know what the quite, all, all the appropriate steps are, but right now we're, we're meeting like, I think, 4% or something along those lines. So, so what can, um, um, Commissioner, what, what can the PUC do to kind of um, encourage a, a, the broader use of, of demand response, or is it sort of a waiting game? I think, um, I think the most important thing that the commission did that's going to encourage more demand response usage is that we kind of put to bed the question on um, the changes to our market. So we created a little bit of certainty out there so that um, all of the people out there chomping at the bit with various tools and various business plans to really take the demand response and run with it can now, now have a clear signal that um, we, are, we, are, we are proud of the energy-only market and we're sticking with it. And um, so now they are free to go out and innovate so that we can really put to use that, the smart meter deployment. Yeah. I, uh, again, want to uh, have point out that we do agree on a number of things, and, and that includes demand response. Sure. It is an amazing tool. It is still underutilized in Texas. I think if there is one thing the system or the regulators ought to do, and I guess ERCOT's a regulator, I count them in that group, are a number of additional changes that would reward 
uh, aggregated demand response, allow them to participate in the market more, uh, some more changes to the hardware software system to allow it to work better. But it would solve two problems. One, it, it solves really the problem of resource adequacy, which is not really a problem of base load. It, it is a problem of peak load. Mm -hmm. And secondly, it would give us a great way to so help solve the 111D compliance requirement because it makes it so much easier to manage the uh, large amounts of intermittent uh, resources. Sure. Okay. Yeah, Jim, I would also say, I think that's a, a great point, uh, and I'm glad um, uh, Chairman Smitherman brought it up. But yeah, demand response, ERCOT's already more than halfway there. Yep. Uh, in fact, uh, we have, I think, the, the most uh, demand response in the state, we at CPSMG, and we're figuring out ways to try to aggregate that because it can be monetized through. Uh, voltage regulation, voltage amps reactive, you know, ancillary services. So there's a big path there. <coughs> the last thing I want to mention um, th that um, that I think is, is important, especially as we talk about the demand side, is um, um, uh, uh, cybersecurity threats and infrastructure hardening. That as as we utilize more of these tools, we create more decentralized generation points. That from a from a, a different way, uh, just different thoughts about reliability and security offer us some options. But the, the, the bottom line is think about the things that we've talked about here. I don't think any other state uh, has, you know, fully, all the barrels loaded as Texas does. <laughs> I mean, it's, we have an incredible amount of wind, solar, demand response, rooftop solar, yeah. utility scale solar, uh, regulation, the, you know, the only other uh, energy only market outside of Alberta. We have it all here in Texas <laughs> and natural gas. I mean, we have the elements to figure something out to make yeah. this work. And so that, that's my final right. uh, conclusive it's, point. It's almost as if we could be our own country. <laughs> <laughs> let's, uh, let's not get into that. That's uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, on that note, on that uh, optimistic uh, um, note, um, let's, uh, I, I, wanna, I, I do want to make sure that we, we get some questions in, and, and we have a few minutes for questions. And uh, um, please make sure that they are questions, not statements. Um, and, um, yeah, looks like we have one over here. Uh, Matt Weldon from Austin, Texas. Um, I wanted to ask a, a question about means to satisfy, satisfy the regulation, because I think the EPA does leave uh, a broad window. And so I was wondering if Texas could uh, chart a, a path that would uh, dovetail with the market, and that's just pricing emissions. Is there anything that would prevent Texas from adding to its energy-only market by pricing emissions as well to create market certainty and then allow the markets to drive our choices as a mechanism a to meet. Yeah, I, I don't think the statutory paradigm that we have right now allows that to happen. So I think the legislature would have to make a change. But as, as I read 111D and the four building blocks, candidly, I think that's probably what EPA intended for us to do was to add a carbon adder. You can also get there by entering into a trading arrangement with another part of the country yeah. that, has, that, that has more carbon credits than we have. So, for example, just for example, um, Texas could enter into a trading program with the Reggie states up in the Northeast. Their long credits were short credits. Th those are potential tools and, and probably, I think that's really, I don't think they'll admit it, I think that's really what EPA had in mind for us. 
Does it take statutory changes in Texas to be so. able to do that? I think so. Okay. Yes, even the trading, uh, yeah. even that. Yeah. So, yeah. so and uh, <laughs> not not the way the law is today. We couldn't do it. Yeah. Okay. We have another question over here. Yes, I was, I was torn between coming to the water and then uh, the talk about water and energy. So, I'm trying to draw the two together. <laughs> you made the right choice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do think I, I did. I really appreciate everyone being here and speaking. Uh, I had a question, though, about water and energy, because I know natural gas plants take far less water mm -hmm. to cool than coal, and also much even then more with nuclear. And in Texas, we have very little water left, particularly in ERCOT. So I'm thinking from the perspective of it takes a really long time to permit a power plant. So getting a new natural gas power plant is going to take a really long time. I was wondering if you could speak to... Um, the connections with water and power plants and how that may be considered in uh, our future. You know, we have a lot of natural gas to use. However, it's going to take a long time to get that permitted. Um, but it certainly seems that since we have so little of it, it would be uh, more to our benefit to have natural gas plants over coal. Could you speak Another to that? Another benefit to natural yeah, gas? Uh, I'm glad you raised this because my water team was going to be very mad at me for not mentioning... <laughs> water as another benefit of 111D. It, that rule, if implemented under any of the four building blocks, will help reduce water use. You're right, natural gas uses a lot less water than coal, uh, and frankly, renewables and energy efficiency use a whole lot less, almost zero. Uh, and obviously, efficiency of plants also has water benefits. Uh, what I, I do think we ought to understand is that we subsidize the heck out of water for power generation. They, they have sweetheart deals, and because of that, it, it skews the price. It makes the plants look less expensive than they are. If uh, power plants were paying the same price for water per gallon that residential customers do, the economics of certain plants would look very differently. It's a hidden subsidy that we ought to do away with. Although there's no permitting competition now between coal and natural gas, I don't know of anybody that's building a coal plant. Correct. I don't, right. I don't know. Right. Uh, you know, because it's not an either or. <laughs> uh, that, you know, because of, the, uh, because of the price of natural gas, particularly in Texas. We have a... Another question over here. Hi, I'm Kevin Turf with EnviroMedia. One of the cheapest forms of energy going forward is energy efficiency. So I'd like to hear a little bit more talk about that. Jim, I know a month ago you wrote about a five-year delay with the PUC in implementing an energy efficiency program. Lots of people are willing to do the right thing in businesses and, and homeowners, but they're not sure what to do. So what can the state do to help with technical assistance and education for energy efficiency going forward? Yeah. Well, the delay was not while Mandy was there. Brandy. Uh, Brand I'm sorry. <laughs> Brandy. Happens all the time. Happens all the time. All right. Brandy. It's okay. And actually, I think the docket started while you were there. It went on for years and years, and it ended after you left, so I can't, can't blame you at all for that. But we have had lots of ideas about how to, to do more energy efficiency uh, through either requirements or actually opening up the market and doing some things. We know that if we would do some of the 111D compliance through energy efficiency, that part would actually save us money 
and could help offset uh, any additional costs from fuel switching or anything else. And the first thing we ought to do under compliance just to save money, not, not just about pollution, is to do a whole lot more efficiency. The, the comparison of our waste versus other states is pretty pretty crazy. Okay. <laughs> if, if you can. So, I'm sorry. Not at all. Um, so uh, the, um, the idea that Texas has done nothing on efficiency is not necessarily fair. I think our industry has spent over $100 million um, working to become more efficient, and um, they bring that back to the PUC. As far as residential customers, um, this, this is a, another example of um, a, a very common, you know, Texas has the policy goal and has had the policy goal for a long time to have cleaner, smarter usage of energy. And this is an area where you see a great policy goal that is very diff- difficult to implement. So I think that we're working towards getting there. I think that in, we have an, an open meeting next week, and I think we're going to, um, the staff is bringing us some, um, some rules that we need to look over, or some uh, proposals for publication that we need to look over and kind of make some directions to start having more movement towards that end. But, um, but it is much like 111D, great policy goals uh, really difficult to implement. And so that doesn't mean we don't keep working towards it, but it just means that realistically as consumers and as regulator, you know, we've just got to make sure that we do it the right way. So, Jim, I'll make a comment regarding that. I, I'll go back to my, my thoughts about and my notions about uh, you know, Adam Smith's invisible hand. I mean, there's some market forces that are happening in Texas that are, I think, allowing convergence on more efficiency and demand response. I think pricing signals... Uh, you know, Chairman Smith mentioned uh, smart meter rollouts. I mean, all these things are, are allowing consumers information uh, to make choices. And with the way ERCOT's going uh, in, Kate, in markets where uh, principally, I think, if it, if certainly if it's vertically integrated like the big munis are, it allows us opportunities to incentivize demand response and efficiency, especially if we can find ways to aggregate them and bundle them in a way that allows us to monetize them through ancillary services. That's going to happen one day. The other part of that is we can bundle them in a wide enough geographic areas that maybe even at some point allow us to retire old, inefficient, simple cycle uh, natural gas plants. Uh, and, and that's kind of our long-term view. But I think I, I don't want to miss that the point that there's not only a regulatory solution. Um, I think there are market uh, motivators and incentive, incentives out there that are naturally uh, allowing customers to converge on uh, more con- more conservation and more demand response. Sure. It looks like we have Jim, time. Let me for- just quickly, when you sit on the PUC, you grapple with this every year because the way that we do regulated energy efficiency is we, we allow the wires companies to run these programs, insulation, new HVAC, windows, other energy efficiency tools, but we charge the customer. The ratepayer gets charged for making that money available for homeowners. And so you're always trying to balance, do I do enough without raising the bill too much? And you know you usually got it right when you make everybody mad. <laughs> so it's a different, it's a difficult balancing act. Sure, and it looks like we have time for one question. We probably have to have pretty quick responses because we're rapidly running out of time, but uh, go on more. Thanks. Kerry uh, King with the Energy Institute here at University of Texas at Austin. Thanks everyone for coming. I guess Texas is mantra is open for business, free market, et cetera. Uh, Doyle has mentioned that 
what business is like is certainty. Doyle works for CPS, which is like Austin Energy, <clears throat> vertically integrated utilities. Is it possible that they can create more certainty for themselves to try to minimize the uncertainty that Texas regulators create by suing the EPA and avoiding <laughs> kinds of rules? Does, does Texas regulators inherently create, <clears throat> Texas response, I guess, inherently create more uncertainty? Or are we sort of certainty, so certain that that's what their response is going to be that it doesn't matter anyway, and Doyle <laughs> makes plans accordingly and has progressed on some of these issues that we're talking about more than the competitive market areas? Well, it sounds like Doyle is probably the right one to answer that well, question. <laughs> no, the answer is no. We're not going to uh, sue the EPA or even propose that, per se. Uh, as I said, we've tried to stay out of that, that part of the fray. Um, however, um, you know, we've had, we have a long view on the uh, opportunity for competitive advantage uh, by having a low carbon portfolio. And, you know, certainly we're not for profit and we try to operate within a defined geographic area, but, and we're not proposing this, but we have to run our business as if someday it'll be retail competition in our service territory. We don't want that, we're not proposing it, but we have to, 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 to defend against it, so to speak. And the way you defend against it is to, uh, to avail yourselves of all the things that offer you competitive advantage. And, you know, my background prior to coming to CPS is all investor-owned, and that's the way uh, we kind of view the world. So we're probably different than Austin uh, in that regard and maybe a lot of other areas, um, but, but that's, that's kind of, uh, you know, the way we view it. And so uh, we're not necessarily uh, uh, advancing the cause of the EPA vis-a-vis 111D, but we're also not opposing it. We're suggesting that uh, there's an inevitability that you could see it coming a long time ago. Um, whether we like it or not, it presents some market certainty. And so we step back and say, uh, how can we find a way to avail ourselves of a competitive advantage in that eventuality? And that's the philosophic view we have about that. Just briefly, I would not uh, want anybody not to use the third branch of government, but it really is not cost effective with EPA. If you look at our history, uh, we complain, we complain, we file suits, but typically we end up doing it. It just delays the certainty. But we do have three branches of government. That's right. And <laughs> we believe we sue not because we like to be litigious, but we think the EPA is acting outside the language of the Clean Air Act. If the Congress wants to pass a bill to regulate carbon and the president signs it, that's a whole different matter, in my opinion, and in the opinion of many people here in our state, as to what the EPA has shoehorned into the Clean Air Act. Right. Well, well. Uh, let me follow up. <laughs> the Supreme Court has said EPA has authority over carbon under the Clean Air Act. All right. And, uh, and with, and, and I think uh, we're going to have to, we, we have to wrap it up now. We're a few minutes, we're a few minutes past. Uh, we're going to um, take it outside. <laughs> getting dirty looks from, from staff members here. So um, I, I really do appreciate all y'all coming out. I hope, I hope there's a good takeaway message here. Um, <laughs> Beyond that the state of the grid is confusing. So. <laughs>